The DMSG Healthcare Podcast Program is brought to you by the DMSG Platinum Sponsors, who do the brainstorming for the DMSG National Healthcare Innovation Think Tank, and they include Vector Medical Group Healthcare Strategist, Ide Bailey CPAs and Business Advisors, Medical Group Management Association, Conferences, Consulting, Education, Advocacy, and Data. First Interstate Bank Healthcare Banking Services and Copic Financial Service Group Insurance and Retirement Planning. If you're interested in becoming a DMSG Healthcare Platinum Sponsor, contact us at Denver Medical Study Group at gmail.com. Welcome to the DMSG Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hadley, founder and CEO of the Denver Medical Study Group. I'm excited today to visit with Dana Jacoby, CEO of Vector Medical Group. Dana is a nationally recognized healthcare strategist who has spoken to the Denver Medical Study Group in person, on webinars, and in podcasts about mergers and acquisitions in healthcare. She also periodically uh, gives our podcast listeners updates and that's what we're here for today. Dana, thanks for joining us today. Uh, would you tell our listeners a little bit about you, who you are and your role in healthcare mergers and acquisitions? <laughs> sure, Chris. Always an honor to be here. Uh, I have, as, as I say every time I speak with you, so much respect for you and what you've built with Denver Medical Study Group. There's really nothing like it nationally. So uh, it's an absolute honor to be here. So I'm a healthcare strategist, uh, and what that basically means is I realized I was a consultant and worked in medical market research for years and years and years, and realized that there was a just a breadth of uh, of difference needed between consulting and, and and medical market research and the transaction world. So there's mergers and acquisitions in healthcare. People that you hire that usually are pretty transactional. They're hired for a transaction you know, an investment banker, a deal flow attorney, a, a, a accounting firm that does quality of earnings. Um, but I realized there was a lot of question, there was just a lot of questions being teed up to those folks and to the consulting folks on what the changes were in healthcare that were needed. And a lot of CEOs and doctors and hospital system executives weren't really sure which direction they wanted to go. So they may wanna exit or they may wanna architect their future with a strategic partner, but they weren't sure which one to choose. So um, kind of a dating strategist, if you want to talk about that, of looking at how to architect really good uh, relationships and futures in healthcare. And honestly, Chris, it started innocently. Um, I was being asked to help physicians navigate their futures and went in, frankly, for free <laughs> early on in my, in my career with this, never thinking that there was a massive opportunity between the consulting arm and the merger and acquisition arm. And that's how Vector was born. That's a, a great story. Thanks for sharing that, Dana. Yeah, you know, as we look at uh, back on 2023 and the year in, what did it look like regarding medical group acquisitions in comparison to the three prior years during COVID? Yeah, it, you know, I feel like an attorney when I do, it, it depends. Um, it was a very interesting year, especially the end of the year, Chris. So 
at the beginning of 2023, those of us that are in the space basically said, hey, this is going to be the year of the bolt on acquisition. We knew that the market for big deals was a little bit wonkier due to interest rates. And if you remember where we were in January of 2023, no one really knew what the Fed was going to do, right? We weren't sure if they were going to raise interest rates, stay the course. Um, you were kind of hearing rumblings about a recession or a possible recession. So the prior two or three years, Chris, there had been a massive pent up opportunity, a lot of money sitting on the sidelines from COVID, a lot of PPP. So remember the, the government stimulus money, a lot of money that was sitting out there. So we saw a record number of deals go on in 21 and 22. Uh, 21 actually, if you look at it in some sectors, it was double. The number of deals so we started to see a little bit of a slowdown um, but don't hear recession or anything of that nature for me it was just a little bit of a pause on the fact that the big deals were starting to have to get capitalized by debt um, we did see a ton of bolt-on acquisitions if there was a slow part of the year it was q4 of 2023 um, so october november december of 23 I feel like the market kind of caught up with itself, but a lot of deals are out to market right now and that they, they kind of took a deep breath and said, okay, we're not in a recession or we're not calling it a recession if we are. Uh, and there's still a ton of capital sitting on the sidelines. So we just got back uh, from a huge conference. We did a physician transactions conference in San Francisco last week. Uh, so Thursday, Friday of last week. And I mean, it was standing room only in that room of the number of people doing deals, the number of doctors selling their practices, the number of hospital executives wanting to acquire businesses. So it's very much uh, still busy. I don't think 2021 will be repeated uh, for a long time, but because we got knock on something, don't have a pandemic getting us ready for that kind of change. Uh, 2021 was just an aberration of a year because of all the changes that happened during 2020. You know, as I, as you talk about that, what do we see going forward in 2024 by comparison? Who who are the investors? Hospitals, medical groups, uh, dental groups, uh, payers, uh, PE investors? Who all are going to be involved in 2024 that uh, is from your perspective? Yeah, the short answer to that, Chris, is yes. <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> um, we see payers, Optum, uh, who's United Healthcare now has over 90,000 providers that they've acquired. So it's a city now worth of providers that they've acquired. Hospitals, definitely, depending on the region, depending on the segment, are at the table. Uh, it's interesting. Hospitals are both acquiring and divesting of medical practices. So it's this kind of interesting situation. We're seeing joint ventures happening with payers, hospitals, and private equity, or private equity and hospitals and physician groups. Um, private equity still has a ton of capital sitting on the sidelines. There's no shortage of money. I think in that space, Chris, there's going to be some winners and losers in 2024 there's certain groups that had so much capital but missed their thesis in certain specialties so you may see some mergers of different private equity entities you may see like an orthopedic private equity backed platform marry another orthopedic backed private equity platform so 
that could be interesting. And the newly minted uh, investors coming into the space, there's some family office money that has had some good successes in the physician practice management space and in things like Medispas and plastic surgery groups. So we're actually seeing family office money now also being earmarked, mainly because the returns on healthcare are just so rich. I mean, we've had a really good opportunity to grow healthcare. So it depends on the region, it depends on the specialty, it depends on the segment, but you're gonna see all of the above. Payers, uh, hospitals, private equity, family office money. Uh, and then of course, you know, I mentioned Optum, but Amazon, CVS, Walgreens, with you know, you you also are seeing some strategic folks coming into the space that are still very much depending on the specialty and depending on the region, they're very much on the acquisition spree. So uh, interesting times. I, I had a, a conversation with a group of doctors last week at an orthopedic conference in San Francisco and told them, you know, if I were a physician, I think it's fascinating times right now because the sky's the limit of who your employer might be moving forward or who you might be a shareholder in because of all the change. You mentioned uh, one resource as far as an investor, you called it the family office money. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, family offices are are basically, Chris, uh, you know, generational wealth folks. So these are folks that have had, you know, th this isn't private equity money or venture money. This is money that may have been invested in railroads or, you know, but these, these are multi hundred million billion dollar enterprises and their tasks, the family office executives or CEO are tasked with going and making generational wealth type of investments. And they see, you know, the healthcare system as being an area that might be a very lucrative opportunity for the future. Uh, and, and a lot of these families already invest in hospital wings. You know, you'll see their names on the buildings of hospitals and things like that. But they're very much getting interested in the entire ecosystem of healthcare. So, uh, not necessarily a new entrant, but uh, but an entrant that I know is putting a fair amount of capital toward this space moving forward and just interesting and exciting to see them excited about the healthcare opportunity and investments moving forward. Well, you know, when I, I look at uh, the different types of investors, most of them seem to be looking at the bottom line. Interesting, the family office money, I wonder if they also are concerned about a quality of healthcare. I'm sure, absolutely, Chris, as all this change is happening, I think everybody, I don't think this is just an investment opportunity for anyone for that matter. I think it's also a quality opportunity or a consumer opportunity for anyone in healthcare. You know, there's families that all of our families, right? But families that want their uh, their folks that they, they're related to to be able to get the best quality care possible. And it's complicated, you know, whereas back in the day, I used to be able to call the local general practitioner and go to the local hospital and I kind of knew everybody in those facilities. Now the CEO of the hospital system may be, you know, in New York or Nashville or Florida, and there's no chance of me getting to them with all the changes and mergers and acquisitions. Same thing, the local orthopedic group might be owned by a roll up out of Chicago. So I think that there's a massive opportunity for kind of patient navigation strategies and quality of care moving forward. You'll definitely see a shift toward that end across all these categories, I think. You know, you have talked in the past about what you've called second bites, 
second bites, third bites, is is that still going on or is that stabilized now? We've seen some awesome, you know what, Chris, we've seen some awesome second bites uh, already this year. And also there's some folks that actually held the line after COVID that were trying to get their house back in order after the pandemic. And, you know, as 2023 and 2024 are hitting, uh, they're definitely back out to market. I will say on second bites, even though they are very much happening, uh, diligence is going a little bit longer than it did in 2021. 2021, it just felt like there was so much capital. Folks were just, you know, second transaction, third transaction. There's a lot more diligencing being done on the second and third transactions, but absolutely, um, there were some huge announcements over the last couple of weeks. Even JP Morgan is always the big healthcare conference where a lot of that stuff gets announced. And if you even Google JP Morgan second by transactions, you can see a lot of the changes and announcements that have happened even in the last month. So very much alive and well, just a tempered second bite. Again, a lot more diligence and a, a lot of additional focus on good assets or good you know operational assets the people that are not winning on second bites or second and third transactions are people that put a tax id number over a bunch of disparate parts and called it a business there's a lot more focus on operational rigor and culture and leadership and things that not that those weren't important but when capital was so easy to come by it covered a lot of transgressions that now are being exposed so is that from the perspective of the investor or the perspective of the medical group or both sides? Both sides. I mean, honestly, Chris, I mean, I think that a lot of folks were excited about, oh, we're going to, you know, we had an asset that that we were excited about getting the second transaction or third transaction around. And then, you know, all of a sudden you go into diligence on both sides and it's like, oh, maybe we need to go back and operationalize our futures a little bit closer in order to really recognize uh, that good multiple or that good, you know, cha-ching on the back end. So I, anyway, the second bites or third bites are alive and well this year. There's too much capital still sitting for there not to be a productive market, but it's, again, a more tempered uh, diligence process than it was back in 21. All right. We're hearing a lot these days about generative AI. Yeah. Is, is AI having an impact on these mergers and acquisitions and if so how yeah you know it's hard in healthcare. i, I keep hearing about ai and uh, my brother actually is in that space so i am close enough to it personally and professionally the hard thing chris is it's it's really hard in a human capital business like healthcare to really come in and put ai over the top of it in in physician groups or in nursing groups now in radiology reads or in medical billing facilities where you have a bunch of people that are kind of going through a, a somewhat of a static decision making tree we're absolutely seeing change i mean med medical billing is there's a lot of ai being fed into the process i'm not seeing it as much from my chair in other words it's being talked about but it's definitely not something that's affecting the multiples or the valuations yet i think it's more of a growth strategy for the future uh when i'm seeing things in in pitch decks and stuff like that but definitely something to be cognizant of it's it's a it's a white hot area uh how much it can affect a human human capital human intensive business like healthcare is is a question mark. I think people are trying it, 
uh, in different segments. But I, again, it's not if you go to the local physician group today, and I mean, are they using AI to see patients? Probably not. So it's just it's coming. It's just not 100% here yet. Recently, I've heard more about a transition of, of some healthcare firms from mergers and acquisitions, particularly mergers, uh, to a cultural transformation. Uh, are you seeing any of that or just what, what are they talking about or thinking of when they say cultural transformation? Yeah, it depends on what, I mean, it depends, Chris, on what they're referring to. My guess, based on what you're saying, is exactly what we just talked about. There were a lot of mergers that came together. You know, I always use the Dahmer Chrysler merger case study as an example of two firms that should have been a great fit. And it was an absolute just debacle. If you, if you read it online, it's one of my favorite case studies of where culture did not add to a one plus one equal 10. And I think in healthcare, we've watched a lot of people bolt stuff together and without realizing that the cultural undercurrent may not be a fit of the two or three entities that they bolted together. And so there's a massive revisitation. Again, when the market starts to be a little bit more frothy or money is harder to come by, all of a sudden you turn back to things that should have been important to begin with. <laughs> Culture, strong leadership, operational excellence, but we are watching some cult, some transformation agents in culture go back on top of these mergers. The market was so fast. There were groups getting married that just were marrying each other for the sake of the good of one plus one they thought equal 10, but they didn't in diligence look at the cultural appetite of the two entities or five entities or whatever it was to marry. So that's probably what you're seeing. We're seeing also some hospitals that realized they've adopted regional platforms and national platforms, and they're thinking maybe we're not a national platform. Maybe we're just a Rocky Mountain region, and that's where our real culture lies and a revisitation of what those core values are. Again, should have been there from the beginning, but when the market is so fast and things are so frothy, um, all of a sudden, you, you kind of have to go back to principles that should have been there from the beginning. You know, a statistic that has surfaced recently is uh, one you mentioned earlier about 10% of the physicians either work for or under United Health, and that's about 90,000 physicians out of 950,000 active physicians here in the United States. Uh, does this strategy create concerns as more payers and pri private equity firms pursue medical practice acquisitions? Yeah, I think the question, Chris, is how does that partnership work? So, for example, I know you and I both live in Denver. Our largest primary care group is owned by Optum, by United Healthcare. It's called New West. New West is actively partnering with some of the private equity-backed specialist platforms to look at uh, contractual arrangements. So you may have a orthopedic group here who's owned by a private equity that then is talking to New West and Optum's leadership about what that looks like, and that's happening all over the country. Uh, so I think it's I, I think it's a question. Optum or or United Healthcare may also be some of the second bites for these private equity roll-ups. So if you have a 
GI group in, you know, whatever, Virginia, your buyer may be Optum as a second bite opportunity. So it, it's interesting to see. I think the biggest thing from, from my lens is when we're thinking about things like risk-based care or value-based care or supply chain dynamics, having, it's, it's actually closer to 95,000 doctors now, having that many physicians nationally is a, that's a city of providers and all the things that are attached to it, right? So a very interesting new entrant into healthcare that has scaled sizably and is kicking off tremendous returns. I mean, it's fascinating to see their model. You know, when you look at numbers like that of 95,000, how do you keep track of it all? You know, very carefully, right? Um, very carefully. I think that a lot of the, it, it's interesting when you look under the hood of the car, Chris, there's a lot of service companies and other companies touching that. So that's just the provider headcount. You think about the other ancillary services or enterprises that touch that, um, but it, it, that's complicated. That's a lot of providers that you have to now figure out control. I will also say it's not one model per se. There's a lot of nuance to, you know, minority buyouts, majority buyouts, payer dynamics. So some of it is also being able to tweak the model state by state, you know, but it's it's fascinating to watch as they've entered into healthcare. And more importantly, how successful they are from a return and a growth standpoint. You know, you would think at some point you had a scalable um, a change where you just can't keep growing and, and they have not, so. Does it have an impact on the quality of care having an organization that size? You know, TBD, I mean, I, I think that the question is how much does it affect if, if Optum or United Healthcare were to go to a specialty group and say, we will not send you patients, right? Because we're the spigot, right? Especially if you're primary care, we won't send you patients unless you change the cost of care back to our uh, constituents. Sure, I mean, could it? Yes. I think that I hope and my, you know, I hope there's enough people underneath the Optum umbrella that are really focused on quality care initiatives that that doesn't happen. But with that size footprint, could it? Sure. I mean, that's a big, big group of providers, many of whom are the spigot leading to the specialist if you think about primary care. So. Do you think it, it's different on a fee for service perspective versus a quality care kind of approaches? That's could be. I mean, it, you could do a capitated model, Chris, over the whole cost of care, right? but we're just, I mean, most groups are just not there yet. I mean, I, we're still, even in my groups that are doing high capitated, high at risk, high value based care models, they're still predicated on the background of a fee for service. I mean, mm -hmm. the spine of the entity is still fee for service, even if they have at risk contracts or they're part of an ACO there's only one group I can think of that goes at risk for the majority of their patients and only one health system I can think of nationally, not talking about, but just off the top of my head. And so it's, we're still the backbone of healthcare in the United States is still fee for service, whether people want to admit it or not is a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, well, but, Dana, it's, it's always a pleasure to visit with you and get updates from you on what's going on. Is there any last thing you would like to share before we close out today? You know, Chris, I just think that one, I, you know, I say this on every time I, I get in front of your listeners, 
institutions or associations like Denver Medical Study Group is where the future of healthcare lies. Having stakeholders from all different aspects of healthcare being able to meet and ideate and brainstorm about how their worlds are changing is where the good stuff happens. I see a lot of solo and siloed out healthcare entities still, whether it's you know, an orthopedic association or a neurology association. And I just think there's a massive need for payers, providers, health systems, private equity executives to sit in a room and talk about the changes. And for the patient, I think being cognizant of the education that needs to happen for you to get good quality care is so critical right now. A lot of patients have no idea about all these changes that are taking place. So I really appreciate you having me and applaud you guys for all you're doing to keep the education forefront in the healthcare system. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure. We look forward to following you as we go into 2024 and then following beyond that. So thank you very much, Dana. Thanks, Chris. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Take care.